If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 5. And I'm actually going to read that just in one chunk this morning. Um, Genesis chapter 5, down through the beginning of chapter 6. So up to chapter 6, verse 8. This is kind of one, it, it's a chapter in a bit in our English Bibles. But you may know this, that the chapter and verse numbers were added much, much later. Like Moses didn't put these numbers in there um, when he did it. So we are, if you look at the chapters as Moses would have divided them, uh, it starts at chapter 5, verse 1, and it goes through um, verse 8 of chapter 6. So we're going to do this as one chunk this morning. So join me, uh, and, and I'm reading in the CSB. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years. Then he died. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years. Then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 850 years, 815 years after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years. Then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalo, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years, then he died. Mahalo was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalo lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Mahalo's life lasted 895 years, then he died. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years, and then he died. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth. 
together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. This is God's word for us this morning. So what difference does it make in your life on just on a daily basis? What difference did it make last week? What difference did it make when you woke up this morning that you were created in the image of God? We saw this in Genesis chapter 1. We see it repeated here in Genesis chapter 5, that you were created resembling God, that you were created to represent God, that you were created to rest in God. Does that influence the way you think? Does it influence your mood when you woke up and got out of bed this morning and you were feeling cold when you took the blankets off? Does it something that crosses your mind? Does it change the way that you make decisions? Or is it something that you believe in, you agree to, you tick the box, but you don't really know what difference it makes? See, Moses, the compiler of Genesis, wanted his people, the people of Israel that he was writing to, to know this. And so he, he repeats it. He wanted to know that whether you were male or female, whether you were young or old, whether you were a friend or an enemy to Israel, you are created in God's image. They are created in God's image, whoever they happen to be. The Spirit of God, likewise, wants you to know that you are created in God's image, specially, and they, whoever they are, are created in God's image. Which, as we've already looked at last week and the week, weeks before that, that means that who you are at your core, this is, this is, this is who you are, this is your identity that your, your worth, your identity, your value, your purpose are not determined by your ability, not determined by your achievements, not determined by what other people say about you or even what you feel about yourself. Who you are, your worth, your value, your purpose has been already determined from the beginning, before the beginning of time by the God who created you, that you might bring him glory as his image bearer now in 2021 and as long as you are on the earth and forever. That you would be satisfied in him who created you more than you're satisfied in anything else. And you might be looking at or, you know, hearing this list of names that I read off in Genesis 5 and think, what could we possibly learn from this chapter? And my answer to you is, there's actually a lot here. There is a lot here if you, if you read it carefully. Um, some of it will be new. Uh, some of it will be kind of revising what we've already seen uh, in Genesis. But all of it is God's word to you this morning in 2021. I want to show you four truths in particular um, this morning. Truth number one is that fallen people, sinful people like us, still bear God's image. Truth number two, God alone preserves his people, his image bearers. Uh, truth number three, sin is still highly infectious and destructive among his people. And, and truth number four, sin will not have the last word over you or me or anyone. All right. 
So truth number one, fallen people still bear God's image. Chapter five, verse one. He starts off with this phrase. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. Now, I said this, I think, when we were back at chapter two. This is a Moses's chapter heading. This is a chapter heading. This is his way of introducing a new chapter. He didn't write the chapter numbers in, so this divides everything that came before with everything that comes after. And this particular chapter lasts from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 8. And if you look at chapter 6, verse 9, you'll see the next chapter heading. And whenever you see these, in Ge- there's 11 of these in Genesis. Um, whenever you see this, this is the document of, or the family record of, and then it gives a name. In this case, the name is Adam. What he's talking about, he's not going to be talking about Adam in this chapter. He's talking about Adam's descendants, Adam's offspring. So these, this section of Genesis is going to be about the 10 generations between Adam and Noah. You notice that even though Adam and Eve had multiple kids, and you'll see every single one of these generations, they had other sons and daughters. They had lots of kids. But the writer, Moses, is only concerned with one of the kids in each generation. So he's tracing a line, a family line, through um, 10 generations. He does something um, important uh, for us in verses 1 and 2. Before we even get to the genealogy, he repeats the creation uh, account of man from chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And here's, here's what he repeats. Here's the truth. It's repeated, so we've got to pay attention. He says, the first man, Adam, was specifically, specially created by God. He was made in the likeness or the image of God. And he says both male and female humans were created by him in his image. And all those he created, he blessed. So this is all just a repeat from what we saw in chapter 1. So why does he do that? Why does he repeat this for us here? Well, you might know this from learning that repetition is is actually how we learn things. This is something that's really important. And so when you see it repeated, um, it's something that we should really pay attention to in Scripture. But also, here's the thing. Chapter 1, when, if you're reading from the perspective of the people in the story, in chapter 1, this, that was said before Adam and Eve sinned, before they rejected God, before they disobeyed, before they found themselves afraid and ashamed and hiding from God. So it's important for Moses to restate this, that even after the sin, after the fall, Human beings, every human being that is created and is born into this earth is created in the image of God. Sinful people, fallen people, broken people still bear his image, are still made according to his likeness. And then you see in verse 3 that when Adam fathers a son, Seth, it says he fathered a son in his likeness. And Adam was in the likeness of God. Seth is in the likeness of Adam, which means that the image of God is passed down from parents to children. It's passed down through the generations. And that's important for a couple of reasons. That to say that every human being is still creating the image of God is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's important because, if you remember I said one of the things about being made in God's image is that we're made to represent him. That means every time we, image bearers, sin against God, we actually are misrepresenting him. 
Sin is a misrepresentation of God. And it doesn't matter whether your sin is, is like you're, you're, you're hurting someone physically or you're hurting someone with words or with actions. Every time you do that thing, every time you speak that thing, you're doing so as someone who is representing God, created in his image. You are, in a sense, in the likeness of God to that person that, or to those people that you are sinning against. You are misrepresenting God in that moment. He created, or if you, if you think about, um, well, I'll speak to the, the, the men in the room. You know, if, if you're uh, married or if you have kids, um, it's not uncommon uh, for men to struggle with anger. It's not uncommon to speak harshly um, to your wife or to your kids or to your coworkers or your friends. But understand that in that moment, you're not just a man with a bad temper. You're also in that moment, someone, a man created to resemble and represent God. And so when you sin in this way, you're still representing God in that moment just really poorly. Um, there, there are many people today who, who would tell you, and, and maybe that's something you guys can relate to, that we, we find it hard to connect with God or feel close to God because the person it, it, when I was young or this person that was supposed to represent God to me was, was harsh and, and cruel or abusive, and, and now I can't picture what it's like to have a, a God, a, a Father who, in heaven who loves me because of the way that I was sinned against. Every sin, you see, is a kind of blasphemy, which blasphemy is to paint a false or a grotesque picture of what God is like. Because of the people in your life, uh, you know, your kids, your, your neighbors, your friends, if they looked to you to be the representation or the walking image of what God is like, how, what would they know of him? Would they know his love, his kindness, his, his gentleness, his mercy, his forgiveness? Even if it's inconsistent and imperfect, would they see it? Or, or would they see something else? Sinful people still bear God's image, and that means our choices, our daily choices, are to really about whether we represent him or we misrepresent him to the other image bearers around us. And the second reason this is important, the second reason this is important is that even though we are, most of us are, are guilty of constantly misrepresenting him um, and rejecting him, here's the thing, he has not rejected you, and he won't. He, he, he's not rejected you. You are still created. You still have the high honor of being created in his image. Still. When Moses wrote these words in Genesis 5, when the psalmist spoke of the men and women who are created a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor, he's not talking about the super good religious people. He's talking about people, normal people, sinful people, broken people who lose their temper, who misrepresent God, crowned with glory and honor. He's talking about you. He's talking about the person who wounded you, the person you're afraid of, your enemy, the baby who is yet to take her first breath, the elderly man who's driving at half the speed limit in front of you. All of them created in God's image. All of them indescribably beautiful 
and precious and beloved by God. And there is no higher honor in the universe than to be created in God's image. There's a lot more to say about Genesis 5, but I, I want to um, draw your attention to the structure. You probably, you know, since this, you picked up on this when I was reading it, there's a lot of repetition in, in the chapter. Every successive generation, there's 10 of them. He says basically the same thing. Um, it's nine verses of the same song. It starts with the man's name. So in verse 3, we get it's Adam. And then he tells us how old they were when they had their kid. And then that's the kid that comes next in the line. And then how much longer dad lived after the son uh, was born. And then he had to stack more kids. And then you get his total lifespan followed by the words, then he died. And we have this repetition nine times. Nine generations from Adam to Lamech. And then the chapter ends with the 10th generation a guy called Noah. And this repetitive structure, if you read it out loud, it might make you think of another chapter that we've already read in Genesis, and that's Genesis chapter 1. There's a lot of connections between chapter 1 and chapter 5. If you remember the same kind of repetitious structure in chapter 1, we got this kind of the refrain, then God said, and then there was, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, and then there was morning one day. And we saw that six different times. Same kind of thing happening here, this repetition. God is like a conductor in chapter 1, calmly calling his creation into being one day at a time. And now in chapter 5, he's this, the conductor is back calling his family into being one generation at a time. This family, the family of chapter 5, is the family of Team Eve that we've talked about. And we know this. You look at, look at Methuselah. He's generation eight. He lives for 969 years old. Even some people that don't know much about the Bible may have heard the name Methuselah, and we associate it with old age. Um, nobody lives for 900 years apart from the grace of God and the power of God. Nobody. Um, every generation in this chapter is, is one generation, one moment closer to the head of the serpent being crushed by the seed of Eve, and the whole earth being filled and radiating with the glory of God from the faces of his people. That, that's really the message of chapter 5 here. Remember back when Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3 against God, and straight away they, um, they hide from God. God comes to find them and, and asks, what did you do? What have you done? And, and straight away, what do they do? They confess their sin. I mean, they, I mean, Adam blames her and she blames the serpent, but they confess their sin. One generation later, and we saw this last week with Cain, very similar thing happens. Um, Cain comes, or Cain murders his brother, then God comes to find him and asks him what he did but he doesn't confess his sin. Do you remember what he does? He lies. And he says, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know where he is. I'm not my brother's keeper. And God, you know, calls him on his sin. He says, oh, I know what you've done. Um, five generations after Cain, and we saw this at the end of chapter four, he has, there's a guy that called Lamech. There's is a different one. There's two Lamechs. This is Cain's Lamech. This is the Lamech that's team serpent. And he's like kind of the first like gangster rapper in the history. He's like, this dude, he 
hurt me. He wounded me. I'm going to kill him. Don't mess with me. And he's like, he's, he's not, not only does he not confess his sin, he doesn't think what he did, his violence is sinful. He brags about it. Do you, do you see the spiral of sin? How every generation in Team Serpent gets worse and worse and worse. And now we see here in chapter 5, there's something missing. We don't see this sin spiral happening with Team Eve. We get seven generations away from Adam. You get to a guy called Enoch, and you see him what? You see him walking with God. He has such a close and intimate relationship with God that the text tells us that he did not, he was one of only about three people who did not die. He doesn't experience physical death. God sort of just raptures him to be with him in his presence. It is the, it's what you don't see in this list. You don't see the spiral down into chaos and sin. See, that, friends, is not just an evidence of, that's not coincidence. That's not luck. That's an evidence of God's grace, his power to preserve his people that is running through the line of a family in stark contrast to the family in chapter 4. Enoch, it says, walked with God in verse 21. The funny thing or interesting thing about that is you'll notice compared to all the other characters, he has the shortest life. His lifespan is 365 years, is like a third less than all of the other characters in chapter 5. All of them are like 900 plus. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying a short life, well, not that 365 years is a short life, but in this context it's short. A short life lived in close fellowship with God is infinitely better than a long life lived apart from him. A short life lived in fellowship with God is infinitely better than a long life lived apart from him. Later on in the Bible, we meet another man whose lifespan was about a third of what was considered a long life. He died at age 33, and yet he had the most satisfying, joy-filled life of any man who's ever lived, and that man is Jesus, of course, and he paved the way for his followers like the Apostle Paul to say such radical things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Enoch to not die, to be gloriously taken to be with God, that was his gain. If you're a Christian today, that means that he has preserved your life. He has called you by name and he has prepared a place for you to be with him forever. If you woke up this morning to live another day, it's because he is calling you today, this day, to be in relationship with him, to walk with him today. And he'll do the same thing tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until the day you die and then an infinite number of tomorrows after that. Let me point out one more thing in chapter 5. In verse 29, we get to the ninth generation, to Lamech. And this is the good Lamech. 
And, and he has a son that he names Noah. And Noah's name, um, he tells us, means relief because Lamech has faith that God will use him to bring relief from all the hardship of the curse of sin that's made it hard to grow food. Um, somehow Noah's life, he believes in faith, will be a part of winding back the curse. Contrast that to the Lamech, the other Lamech in chapter 4. He trusts in himself and in his muscles and to make other people afraid, to keep them off his patch. Righteous Lamech trusts in God. He says that he, 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 he's one of the ones that's calling to God for help, for salvation, for rescue. Why did he trust God? I don't think it happened in a vacuum. Well, I know it didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, this is something I think that's worth pointing out, for, especially for us parents in the room. One of the reasons he trusted God, Lamech did, is because seven generations before him, Seth, in Seth's time, Enosh time, Enosh's time, remember it says, in that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. And that heritage was passed down from generation to generation, very intentionally. Listen, if, if you were born into a family with, with a mom or a dad or a grandparent who believed God, who knew the gospel of Jesus, that is an incredible gift of grace to you. And let me say a word to those of you who were not. You have, if you're a parent, you have children, you have people in your life who you influence, friends, neighbors. You have the ability to be that gift of grace to others, to pass down the grace that has been shown and given to you, whether it was by your parents or a pastor or someone else. You have the ability to be that conduit of grace from one generation to another to another. You know, God could, if he so chose, specially appear um, to each successive generation anew. He could. But most of the time, what he does is he uses ordinary people like you and me to pass down faith and trust and belief and joy in Jesus from, from, from one generation to another, from parent to child, from friend to to friend. If you know those people in your life, whoever they are, whether it's a family member or a pastor or a friend, man, thank God for those people regularly. Don't let their stories go untold because their stories are important. They're the stories that we will be telling for eternity. We'll be praising God for his goodness to us. Okay, chapter 6. We get to the end of the song of Seth's family line, and sadly, just being in the family isn't enough to keep sin at bay completely. Because, and, and sin is pictured here like a virus. It's, it's highly infectious. It can spread through whole families and communities in just one generation. And I want to show you this from the first few verses of chapter 6. Now, let me say up front... Chapter 6, the first four verses in particular, have been the source of almost, almost endless speculation. What is Moses talking about here? 
Here's verses 1 and 2. It says, When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took and they chose as wives for themselves. So, who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of mankind? Any of you ever see the movie came out a few years ago with Russell Crowe playing Noah? A few of you have seen it. If you've seen the movie, like, I mean... I can't really spoil it for you because it's here. You know the story. Um, this section is portrayed. They get some sources that kind of sort of outside the Bible to kind of speculate what this, what's happening here. Um, one of the um, theories, if you like, of who these sons of God are and who their kids are is that these sons of God are actually angels, angelic spirit beings who fell out of heaven, who left their place in heaven and fell into sin. And they ended up having physical relationships with people, with women, uh, human women, and producing these sort of powerful, giant-like um, race of people called uh, the Nephilim. And in the movie, these um, Nephilim are portrayed as rock monsters. They are. They're called the Watchers, if you've seen the movie. Anyway, I think that somewhere on the screen there may be a, a photo of, of these uh, behind me. Um, so these are, yeah, there they are. There's the rock monsters. So who are the sons? Who are they really? Is that, did, they, did the producers of that movie uh, get it right? Um, I, I don't think so. You're probably not surprised by the answer. Um, who are the Nephilim then? And down in verse 4. So, okay, three main possibilities. First one I just mentioned, these, these guys are fallen angels who they leave heaven because they fall in love with human women. It sounds a bit like fan fiction, but there are people who ha hold this view. Um, the Hebrew term that's translated sons of God normally does refer to angelic beings. It is a, a term that's used to refer to angelic beings. Now, I do not hold this view, and the reason I do not hold this view is because nowhere, nowhere in the Bible do we see other examples of angels having physical romantic relationships with humans. We just don't see it. Um, the second possibility is that the sons of God um, are godly men, righteous men in Seth's line. They're, they're team e men in Team Eve, but they get lured away by the beauty of the daughters of mankind and who belong to Cain, who are in Cain's line. Um, this is John Calvin, Luther. This is their view. This is probably the most common view um, in the history of the church. This is what this means. It means the Nephilim, the, the, the offspring, were the result of Team Eve and Team Serpent uh, getting together and having babies when they shouldn't. However, I don't think that view does the, really explains what's going on in verse 2. So let me read verse 2 again. Verse 2 says this. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took and they chose as wives for themselves. Now, just the verbs. Let me just narrow it down to the verbs happening in verse 2. It says, they saw beautiful, and they took. Now, my question is, does that sound like the behavior of godly men to you? I think it sounds a bit more like Tarzan. I see, I like, I take. And it sounds a lot like Eve in chapter 3, in the moment she sinned. She saw that the fruit was good, that it was pleasing, that it was desirable, and she took and she ate. Which leads us to the third view, and that the sons of God are ungodly, 
possibly even demon-possessed, strong men who coerce less powerful women into marriage. Now, let me say, this is the view I lean towards. This is a controversial section of scripture, namely because it's not super clear. It could, from the language, mean any of these things. I lean towards view number three. If this is something that interests you, I just, yeah, challenge you to go and read a study Bible or read the commentaries and, and come to your own conclusion. All of these three conclusions are acceptable, um, biblically speaking. Um, I lean towards number three, and here's, here's why. Um, the kids, we read in verse four, the Nephilim, are described as powerful, famous men. Um, Nephilim, when it, that word is a Hebrew word that we don't really know what it means, but when they translate it into Latin, they used, um, or sorry, into Greek, um, they use the word that means giants. So people have often thought these are giant fighter type people or rock monsters, depending on how creative you want to get with it. Um, and so there's something um, about this particular family that's in the, the DNA. And in the ancient world, um, if you were really tall, you were really strong, you were most likely going to be given a high status in society. You were, going to be, you were probably going to be a king or a noble, somebody really powerful, because that's what it meant to be a king. It meant to be big and strong and a good fighter. And so it makes sense then when they use this term sons of God, which elsewhere is also used for royal, noble, powerful people, um, they had the power then to select among all of the women just to go and, and take uh, for themselves and, and into their harem, if you like. It, it was a common practice in, in, in the ancient world. And you see here the contrast between the first marriage in chapter 2 the first marriage in chapter 2, remember, God puts Adam to sleep, creates Eve out of his side, and then he wakes up and sees her, and he's just captivated by her beauty, and says, you know, this, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and he's just so overjoyed with this gift he's received. Contrast to the marriage happening here of just raw power, taking what I see and making it, it mine. It's, it's so different, you see. It's the sin spiral. This is what the beauty of marriage has become. Well, how bad is it? Verse 3, God sends this warning that his spirit, the breath of life, is now only going to remain with humanity another 120 years. It's a sign that there's this destruction, this decreation that's about to happen. And you get, again, in verse 5, this almost over-the-top description of how bad things are. It says, the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all of the time. Wow, that's pretty bad. Sin and evil have become the global pandemic in one generation. End of chapter 5, Lamech is holding out this hope that Noah, in Noah's generation, the curse will be wound back. There will be relief. And now in chapter 6, it's like COVID. It's gone absolutely everywhere. Why? Because humans have spread everywhere. They did what God told them to do. They were fruitful. They multiplied. But sin multiplied along with them. Sin, is, sin doesn't just spread, though, geographically. It also sinks spiritually deeper into the hearts and the minds of individual people. 
such that when sin has its way in a person, every thought, every inclination, every desire is nothing but evil all of the time. It can't get any worse. We are at rock bottom. And so in verse 6, we read that the Lord had regretted that he had made humans. He was, it says, deeply grieved by the people he created to have relationship with him. The people he created to fill the earth with his glory have now filled the earth with violence and corruption and the stench of murder and oppression and injustice. And so now he's preparing to decreate, to remove them from the earth. If you ever wonder why it's really hard to just say no to the urges, why, why it's hard to fix yourself, this is why. Sin and corruption are, are like an infection and that just seep in to everything. And sometimes the only way to get rid of it is to take drastic action, like to just burn it down. Um, the most drastic action though, that you can take against the sin and corruption in your own heart, the, the anger, the unforgiveness, is to take it to God, to take it to God, to confess it, to let him forgive and, and let him heal you. Which brings us to the very last verse that we read, verse 8. It's this beautiful seven-letter word in verse 8. It's the word however. However. Against this backdrop of complete, you know, just flaming depravity, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Noah found favor with the Lord. How did that happen? Wasn't his heart also corrupt like everyone? Wasn't he also a sinner? Well, yes, he, he was. So how did it happen? How did he find favor with God? Just like you and me. Next week, Moses uses these words to describe Noah. He was righteous and blameless in his generation. And just like Enoch three generations earlier, he walked with God. By God's grace, the faith of his ancestors made its way to Noah. And as a result of God's grace, his favor lands on Noah, and he is set apart to be the one who will preserve the line of humanity. His life is chosen by God specifically to be the next echo of his grace. That the serpent, that well, though the serpent and his offspring might be everywhere and filling every space, they might seem to be winning Every battle with just a few seconds to go on the game clock, they will never have the last word. God's grace comes right at the right moment, at the right time, and the result is we are saved. Because the most important fact about you is that you were made uniquely by a God who loves you more than you will ever know. A God who knows just how deep the infection of sin has sunk into your heart and your thoughts and your actions. Thousands of years ago, he preserved one family, one family line that gave rise to a faithful man called Noah. So that hundreds of years later, that same family line would be preserved to give rise to another righteous, faithful man. 
And this man, Jesus, would be the one, the only one, who would go through all of life resisting sin's pull and his, its corrupting allure every step of the way. And he resisted not just for himself, but for you. So that when he cries, when he died, his perfect, blameless record would be exchanged with yours so that you could finally know the joy of walking with God. Not for 30 years or 300 or 900 years, but forever. So whether you come from a Christian family or family that's broken and unsafe, you have a place in, in God's family in his family line. This is your family line. Whether you're somebody who knows how corrupt and confusing your heart and your mind can be, or whether you think you're basically all right. See, God is the only one who will preserve you forever. And every one of us in this room will never stop singing or, or being in awe of the fact that when he looked at our sin, he didn't just burn it all down. He sent down his son to be brutalized. The punishment that we deserved was far too great. It's like Cain said, my punishment's too great for me to bear. That punishment that we deserved is far too great for us to bear. He bore it on the cross, and then he rose again from the dead as the firstborn of many sons and daughters, many brothers and sisters, men and women who get to walk with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we read and we know from your word that you are in the business of raising a family, creating a family for your glory. Thank you that you have adopted us by grace into this family, not because of what we've done, not because we were good, not because we were deserving, not because you felt sorry for us, but because of your grace, that while we were yet sinners, you died, Jesus, for us. This is, this is love. Help us to see it and taste it when we come to the table this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.